and welcome to Analyse This, Mental Health in Film and TV. I am your host, Dr Boo, clinical psychologist. Each week, myself and a guest take a look at a film or series and consider the way mental health, neurodiversity and therapy are portrayed. Today, I'm joined by Dr Kat Gardner, another clinical psychologist, to talk about the film Inside Out. I'm joy. This is sadness. That's anger. This is disgust. And that's fear. We're Riley's emotions. These are Riley's memories. They're mostly happy, you'll notice, not to brag. I wanted to maybe hold one. What happened? Sadness. She did something to the memory. Is everything okay? I don't know. Take it back, Joy. Joy, no. Wait. The core memories. Can I say that curse word now? Inside Out is a much-loved film with a cute concept of how emotions, memories and personalities work. But is it an accurate representation? How might it be helpful to us in our therapy work? And keep listening to find out why Dr Cat thinks there's a bit of a dark side to joy. I'm here today with Dr. Kat Gardner of Green Shoot Psychology and also of In Mind Consulting. And thank you so much for joining us today, Kat. Thank you, Dr. Boo. It's a pleasure to be here. And actually, I'm going to call you Dr. Kat because that is how I think of you outside <laughs> of talking to you as a friend, Dr. Kat in psychology mode. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself Um in the psychology world, how do you position yourself? What what kind of approaches do you take? What kind of clients do you tend to work with? Well, I work with quite a range of clients um, from children and adolescents, often struggling with their emotions and that then having an impact on how they're doing in their social world or how they're getting in their families. And I also work with adults often around, again, around struggling with emotions, um, around how that impacts you at work, how you show up in your family, how you're able to live the life that you want to live when you've got this whole tricky thing in your brain that um, impacts you and how being human can make living life pretty tricky sometimes. Yes, our tricky brains, they are. And and these emotions. So this is what we're talking about today. Um, Absolutely. Inside out. Yeah, doing more as well in terms of just trying to, because I think it's it's interesting in terms of stepping a bit more into the corporate space and how actually it's not just us as individuals, it's us as, um, whether it's groups, communities, organizations, and how we think about people and hold them in mind and hold their emotional and psychological needs in mind and how that impacts every facet of life, really. Absolutely. And that's really, really good because I... So Dr. Kat and I, along with um, our lovely colleagues, uh, Dr. Rosie and Dr. Kendall, um, have set up In Mind Consulting. And we are a group of registered psychologists. And this is what we do. We we talk to companies about creating resilience and um, psychological well-being in the workplace. And we look at that from a real evidence-based perspective. But one of the really big things that we end up talking about is how our emotions, our tricky brains, actually, they they come into work. We don't leave them behind. We don't say, actually, I'm in work mode now. I don't need to worry about, you know, anger and fear. That just doesn't come into it. Of course it does. So I think it'd be really interesting to kind of keep that at the back of our minds while we talk about this film, Inside Out, which is is a little 
little old now, to be honest. You know, they've released a few more since this one. But quite a few people have said to me, you haven't done Inside Out yet. Why haven't you done Inside Out? Because it really is a, a classic one, especially for psychologists, because it's a really good portrayal of emotions. And it can be really, really useful in a therapeutic setting to kind of bring in narrative approach to your emotions as little things and it really helps so just to give a really brief synopsis for anybody who for some reason has missed this film um usually happy girl we meet the emotions controlling riley who's 11 she's got joy running the show in her head most of the time um and at the console in her brain there's also sadness fear disgust and anger and depending on who is in control of this console tends to determine what sort of reactions she's going to have to events so first of all joy tries to keep sadness away from everything. In fact, at one point, she draws this little circle around sadness that she's not allowed out of, mainly to stop sadness having any control or touching Riley's core memories, which are these little marbles. And as a result, Riley is this resilient, happy child, apparently. But what Joy doesn't seem to understand is that it's okay to be sad. And some memories that make us happy can also make us sad. And in fact, some of these core memories are actually sad memories. So life changes with this series of events where Joy is doing her best to keep sadness away from everything. And that results actually in the loss of sadness and joy from Riley's sort of emotional console. And they disappear off into her long-term memory. And these adventures of joy and sadness take them on this journey through imagination land and abstract thought and deep into the subconscious where they put the troublemakers, which I love. love It's a great line. Um, Meeting along the way figures from her pre-operational stage, which is really cool too. Um, and But that leaves anger, disgust and fear in charge of the console, which leads Riley to feel predominantly sort of angry, apathy. Basically, I found using this in therapy can be really, really helpful for both children and adults, actually, to consider their emotions to be like these little guys. So, oh, OK, this is fear at the controls again is actually a lot more helpful, I think, than saying I'm scared. I can't, you know, I am scared. It's actually, okay, no, that is a feeling of fear. It's like kind of pushing it away, isn't it? And stepping back and naming it and observing it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really interesting, actually. I did some narrative therapy training. Um, It was one of, when you train to be a clinical psychologist, it's a really interesting time because you have three years and you get, um, well, certainly the course I went to in Exeter, you get exposed to lots of different therapeutic ways of approaching psychological distress um, and models view things like emotions and thoughts and behavior differently, how they describe them, how they talk about them and how they advise therapists how best to um, interact with someone who's experiencing difficulties because of them. And the idea of personifying your emotions spreads across lots of different um, psychological forms of therapy. And so I started off, I started did some narrative therapy training while I was still a trainee and loved it. And so much of that is actually about our use of language um, and how we can um, we develop these narratives, these stories that we tell ourselves. So we can, the story about fear could be, I am afraid which might quite quickly leap, leap to, I am a fearful person, fear has got hold of me, I can't cope, I can't manage, as opposed to the narrative of what's fear, what is fear like? Can we make it into a little person or a little monster or a little thing? What colour is it? What size is it? Can we give it a shape, a form, a texture? Can we look at the impact of it on your life? 
what does it want for you? Does it want positive things for you or bad things for you? Um, and it's been a really, it's been really interesting as a journey in terms of using this technique. And I mean, kids often get it straight away because the idea of using their creative minds to describe things, it's just part of their language. But for adults as well, although sometimes there is this slight looking in their eye when you're like, what, what, what color is it? What shape would it be? But very quickly, once people, I think, loosen up around that you develop these amazing descriptions and I remember working with someone years ago who um loved Marvel and I can only imagine that he's had like the best last 15 years in terms of his cinematography viewing because he loved Marvel when it was mostly comics and the old school cartoons that some of us grew up watching um and um but I remember he um he had OCD obsessive compulsive disorder and so he used to describe it as Loki the trickster who was trying to tell him he had to wash his hands. He had to turn that light switch on and off five times before leaving the house. Otherwise he would get really sick. His dad would get really sick. And by being able to create that distance, that separation, it was Loki the trickster trying to trick him. Um, It was really, really helpful for him. Um, And I use a lot of ACT now, acceptance and commitment therapy in my work. And ACT also has this real... um, uh this love of personification and description and narrative and understanding well what is it how could you describe it what's it look like what's it feel like where do you experience it in your body there's lots of these ways of um, personifying and understanding something that helps create that bit of psychological distance that actually ultimately gives us a space to move in a space to remember we have efficacy we can change even sometimes only small changes when we're feeling really stuck, but we can make changes even in these spaces. Yeah. And the way that um, acceptance and commitment therapy works as well with regards to thanking your brain, which is one of my mm. favourite things, because actually what you what you can then do is you can picture that. You can picture all these little things at the console just trying their best, you know, yes. anxiety trying its best to protect or anger trying its best to keep you safe and stand up for, for your rights when threatened and all these kinds of things. You can say, okay, I can see you little guys. Thank you for what you're yep. trying to do. Yep. And I I think I think Inside Out the writers did that beautifully. And um I mean they they say that they worked alongside psychologists in developing it. And you can see it because actually that yeah, that capacity that they're very clear on that um that fear is there to keep Riley safe, that disgust is there to keep Riley from being poisoned physically and socially, which yes. I thought is brilliant because actually we do we are social creatures and the that we've got this hardwired desire and need to be part of the group and not to muck it up and that that could be very risky for us. Um, and I love the fact that anger cares very deeply about things being fair. And that's actually, I think, a really helpful reframe as well, because I think anger can be, uh, we'll probably talk about this later, I imagine, as well, but I think we have such strong socialization into our emotions and anger can be seen as this really negative. But as you said, it's about if you care very deeply about being fair, then anger might be the fuel that you need to stand up for yourself, stand up for somebody else, to become an activist in a societal way against something that isn't right. Um, so actually, we we need anger as well. And I love the fact that they kind of say uh, uh, that Joy says, sadness, I'm not actually sure what she does, because that's the that's that's the story arc for for Joy is that she starts the movie 
she doesn't know why sadness is there. And I mean, I've, I've watched the movie quite a lot of times, but I, I, I took my, my homework prep <laughs> for the podcast. I know you know me, you know, this would be very much part of my personality. Took it very seriously. Um, so me and the kids rewatched it um, last week and I was really struck by this very first scene and Joy meets, it comes into being in Riley's brain and there's this really cute baby who's doing that funny baby mouthy stuff and Joy appears in this dark room and she she talks about how um, that it was amazing. She was with, with she felt like she was with Riley forever, but actually it was 15 seconds before sadness comes in. And then sadness appears. They introduce each other. Sadness presses that very limited console because it's very simple because Riley's a baby. You literally just press it and it's cause and effect. Um, and then Joy, when um, Riley starts crying, Joy immediately says, I'll, I'll, let me just fix it. And I think, again, that's that. There's that. We need to, we have this such an impulse, don't we, that we need to fix difficult or negative emotions, how difficult it is for us to sit with them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's the thing that it felt to me on first looking at it that potentially it does look like there's almost weighted towards what's considered to be negative emotions because we are brought mm. up, as you say, to believe that there are positive emotions and negative emotions. Joy is positive. Sadness is negative. And it's interesting that when you look at kind of what emotions could have been left out, what other emotions they could have used, because obviously we're, we're not limited to to just those emotions. <laughs> we have more complex characters uh, living up there. <laughs> but basic emotion theory proposes that we do have this limited number of sort of fear, anger, joy, sadness are biologically and psychologically basic emotions. And they're kind of preserved because they're essential. They're essential to evolution and adaptation. So there's proposals of possibly eight emotions. Um, I think Robert Plutik says that there's anger, fear, sadness, disgust, surprise, anticipation, trust and joy. Um, and Ekman as well, who I think was one of the psychologists that helped in Inside Out, um, also proposed seven, which also included so contempt and disgust as two separate ones, which I think is interesting. And yeah. surprise. So I kind of think it's a little bit sad that there isn't surprise, because actually, I think, especially as a baby, there's a lot of surprise. It's kind of everything is new. Everything is a surprise. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a frightening thing or an angry making thing or a joyful thing. It is just a thing. It's an emotion of its own. Oh, gosh. And then you decide what you're going to do with it. Then you can decide who's going to get to the console next. It's a surprise. Can be there yeah. first. If 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 anyone ever needs cheering up, um, if you look on YouTube for babies surprised going through tunnels, there are some amazing YouTube videos of people who have videoed their baby going in a car, traveling from um, light to dark, and the look of surprise, bewilderment, and wonder on these babies' faces is hilarious. It's a great example of that. Oh, great! I love that. I have to look that up. So. It then made me think, okay, so are these actually quite negative emotions? Because what we've ended up with is taking out surprise as, you know, does that mean that we've got the sadness, disgust, anger and fear, and then you've got joy. But actually, the way that that you've talked about it, I think, is more that it's that they all have a role and they're not, anxiety isn't necessarily negative fear isn't necessarily a negative thing in fact sometimes fear can be quite a positive thing you know we pop ourselves onto a roller coaster we can feel both fear and joy at the same time which is something I think joy then learns right as the time goes by she learns that she can share the console 
as yeah. the adults do in their little brains. <laughs> the consoles are bigger. Everybody has space. Absolutely. And everyone's sitting down as well, which is, uh, again, something yes. I think very, very interesting how the because you, you see as the film progresses, you see into mum's head and dad's head. Um, the the out reel is hilarious because you see into dogs, cats, teenage boys heads as well. But so that's good. a whole other matter. Um, but I think you're I think you're absolutely right, because um, I think it's. I, mean, I quite frequently work with people who, for whom fear or anxiety is a big part of the reason why they're seeking therapeutic support at that time. And my sort of uh, the starting blocks of those therapy sessions are exploring what is the biological basis for fear in a and I know we, we, we're still understanding a lot about our emotions and um, we've got some neuropsychological theories that maybe are more of a broad brush story than neuropsychological hard fact, let's just say. But in terms of the idea that actually fear is there to keep us safe um, and that actually this has been hardwired into us from an evolutionary perspective, that we we need we need fear. We need to be able to be um to look outside to hear a, a, a rustle in the bushes as we're walking through a dark jungle or savanna and to think and to sort of have that moment to think is this rustle in the bushes something that's coming to eat me is this something that if I if I kind of get my spear ready I'm going to be able to catch dinner for me and my tribe or is this something that I need to just run away or freeze and figure out what's going on? This is where our sort of fight or flight and freeze comes from. And so it's 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 functional to experience fear. If we didn't have it, that also causes us large and significant problems. Um, and I think it, it what I think is really interesting and why actually I, I personally as a clinician, I have shifted over from um, from sort of more traditional CBT ways of responding to um, anxiety and fear is the idea that actually this isn't something to be necessarily argued with and to put it on a trial in court and find all the evidence for and find all the evidence against and think about and challenge our maladaptive ways of thinking because I think in, in I love the way that um, um, Act Auntie, who does amazing videos, who's um, Louise Gardner, who sadly died earlier this year, but her stuff's on YouTube and it's really accessible and brilliant. And she's got a lovely video um, that talks about the human mind. Um, and it talks about the, your, your, your mind desperately wanting to keep you safe. It's trying to protect you. It's trying to look out for the stuff that could go wrong. And most of the time, that's helpful. We have this kind of preternatural ability to stick our arms out when we're about to fall or grab a child just as they're tipping over. Or um, we, we've got this ability to do things faster than we can think, which is really, really useful. But it's really difficult when our, when we're in that kind of stress, fight, flight, um, continual mode and we're completely on edge looking out all the time for potential threats and our threshold is actually got a bit lowered and everything is everything is feeling like a threat everything is feeling dangerous and our capacity to cope feels minimal so I, I can totally see how it can be seen as this is a negative emotion and I think people's lived experience and sometimes the conversation you have with people um is why well, I just want to get rid of it I, I I don't want this in my life anymore this is too hard so actually I think that that's can be part of the work is actually well what how is this how is this helping you and how is this not helping you? What does it, what is it trying to do 
and what maybe is the kind of the 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 the, the bundle of emotions i think um russ harris um talks about the struggle switch um uh about how when we feel an emotion like um anxiety we then actually wrap around it this other emotion we might often feel sad why am i feeling so anxious this is really really hard my life is really rubbish then we might feel anger this is really unfair i can't believe i'm still struggling with this is terrible and then we might feel despair or frustration or this kind of emotion upon emotion upon emotion and we end up struggling with this big ball and um inside out i imagine it'll be round the desk trying to press the different buttons getting very cross and and it'd be very difficult um but I think Inside Out is really interesting because I think it does try and redeem the character of Fear. It, Fear gets given a job. When it's Riley's first day of school, Fear is asked, make, go and make a list of all the things that could go wrong. So she might, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe one of those things on that list is forget, don't forget your lunch money. So Riley might make doubly sure she's got her lunch money or remember where you're going, what bus stop you get off at. So that's functionally helpful to know, okay, these things could go wrong. I'm going to prepare myself for them. Um, later on, fear is in control of the console when when Riley's dreaming, and um, uh, elsewhere in the um, in the story, um, you've got joy and sadness trying to get back to headquarters. So they actually interfere with Riley's dreams. But initially, fear is very competent because fear is watching the dreams and going, "Oh yes, teeth falling out, seen it all before. Oh yes, I've not got any trousers on. Blah blah blah. I can cope with this." And only gets freaked out when it's something completely novel and is like, what's going on here? I don't know what to make of this. So there is, I think, this redemption of fear as there's there's a purpose to fear. There's something that they're, 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 they, they, they've got a job to do. They can do it. Yes, sometimes it can be very difficult when they do do that, but they're not just all bad. Yeah. And yet we do have this toxic positivity this idea oh. that you must not be anything but happy um yes. and actually this is something that russ harris says as well is that actually it's it, the happiness trap it it's it's really hard to be happy all the time people aren't happy all no. the time and yet that is kind of put forward as that is the goal the goal is to be no. permanently happy and and we see that in the film um where riley's mum's talking to her um, on the first night in their new house and um, through all this confusion you've stayed our happy girl if you and I could keep smiling it would be a big help can you do that for him him being dad and it is this kind of like push that she should be happy and it becomes the struggle doesn't it which is again quite an act thing the Absolutely. struggle of how to stay happy when actually you're not yeah <laughs> and it is okay think, not to be happy. Absolutely. And I think it's a narrative that's been spoken over her, um, literally since the first words that she can remember hearing. Um, so the first memory that is encoded is, I can't remember if it's dad or mum, is saying, is our, saying, oh, Riley, you're such a bundle of joy. And I mean, you and I are both parents. We know we, we, and I remember being a kid, I remember hearing stories of my childhood being spoken over me as a tween, as an adolescent, even as an adult. Um, and so we, we hear these stories being rehearsed and you can imagine Riley being, oh, you're our bundle of joy. You're such a joy-filled kid. You're so goofy or you're so this, that and the other. And sometimes these things are really protective. They're really helpful because they can become a helpful part of our self-concepts. Um, but if they're too rigid, if they're inflexible, they, they're, they're unhelpful. Um, and I think that's, again, a, 
big theme in my clinical work and also that's overspilt into my own life in how I try and manage my own brain and how I try and parent my children is that awareness of actually how strong those narratives are and how um yeah how they 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 speak to us in unhelpful ways um and um and and uh they 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 can leave us holding on to things and feeling things that actually aren't very helpful and put a lot of pressure because i think for riley if she's grown up with that oh you're a bundle of joy you're so joyful you're so happy how hard is it for riley then as a i mean she's 11 at the start of the film or just turned 11 she's just turned 12 at the end of the film how hard is it for her to then say this sucks and I'm cross and I'm sad and I I don't want to be here, which is what she ends up having to say. And the only way she can say it at the end of the film is when Joy lets sadness take that control and actually let sadness touch the core memories, tinging them with sadness. They turn blue and it's, it's, you've got all the other emotions going sadness doesn't know what to do how is she gonna do it but joy has had this epiphany because of what she's learned in the film she's moved from sad she doesn't know what the function of sadness is so she realizes that um sadness was what let mum and her, her mum and her dad know that riley needed help when riley was struggling sadness was the bit that she knew and she also sees sadness comfort bing bong who's this great imaginary character that they meet on their journey and joy's like how did you know what to do and she's just like trying to blast with it'll get better it'll be fine and earlier on in the film when they're doing that fantastic pixar thing of establishing characters that they do really well in the way that i think is lovely and clear for adults and for small people is um is joy says oh there's always a way to turn it around and find the fun and so that's her modus operandi she tries to turn everything around and find the fun and I mean I'm sure I've certainly experienced in my life sometimes I I need someone to sit next to me and say that sucks I'm sorry I I I don't need someone to to find the fun or to try and see the silver lining It, it, it it's not gonna help me emotionally in that moment or actually move through it yeah yeah absolutely true it's interesting you talk about how um, Pixar introduces the characters. I'm going to segue a little bit here into a um, little a little drop of of my one of my concerns about the film, and it may be because it is actually I think such a good film that I'm nitpicking. <laughs> but anger is very masculine, yes, and I think in some ways the film is rather intrinsically sexist, basically. So joy is this thin, light, airy, bouncy thing. Yeah. Sadness is a frumpy, fat thing. And disgust is, frankly, a mean girl from high school. Yeah. And then you have at the dinner table, dad's thinking about sports. Mum tries to get him to parent when she's actually wishing she'd chosen some Brazilian helicopter pilot person. And she has this dignified row of ladies controlling her responses. And the dad has a kind of posse of military, militaristic. That's not how you pronounce that word. Militaristic. command center (laughs) and I just kind of look at that and think was that was that necessary could we not have done a little bit more of a kind of a mix-up there why does anger have to be masculine what is that about yeah I agree with you I really agree with you and I think um as a society we struggle with women's anger 
we are not socialized to be angry it I remember I used to work in cams years ago and I remember talking to um colleagues in cams who said yep you we see a lot of angry boys and sad anxious girls and that was tongue-in-cheek because we did see some angry girls and we did see some sad anxious boys but um how we express distress we often express distress in the way that society allows us to express distress um and i absolutely agree i think it's interesting i've been reading some of the the blogs and some of the stuff that people from pixar have written and they do actually touch on the fact that they have they recognize that there's a bit of, there's a masculine feminine divide here and the person oh i just i just see anger as a bit more male yeah no, no surprise you're a male writer and a male uh and a male producer i can't remember whether it's the writer or the producer who said that but um i mean you look at the Sev- um sarah everard um protests angry women we as a society we don't really know what to do with them and it's very easy to castigate them and to show them as something different it's like calm down darling or um so much stuff and it's like I mean I've got a boy and a girl in terms of my children and I want to teach them both to manage anger and to express anger in the in a way that is good for them psychologically even if it's not easy necessarily for um and and to pretend that they will they may get pushback on that because actually I mean at the moment my three-year-old does not have this problem because she's three so she can be angry and obstreperous and actually downright kind of um difficult at times bless her cotton socks and that's fine because she's three she's but I, I don't want to shame her for her anger I don't want to make her feel somehow this is something that isn't of you you shouldn't have this emotion this is something that's for the boys for the men because yeah. what we need is we need people who can use who can care about things being fair and things being right and can go out there and make things more fair and make things more right because goodness knows that's what this world needs and it needs men and women to do this yeah. And for it not to be this kind of polarized viewpoint. Yeah. And it's just it's just not it's just not helpful. It's not no. a helpful way of expressing emotions looking mm. like that. And I also do think it's it's not fair on men no. to be this idea that actually all they're thinking about at the table is sports and the mother has to get them to be a father. That's that's no my, not okay. My... No, my husband gets so cross when he watches things like that or when he has um, or when people make comments around, I don't know, someone going away or holidays or something. It's like, oh, this must be really hard for cats or something like that from a, from a, that I'm therefore shouldering all of this parenting. And it's like, well, actually, no, we're, 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 we're co-parenting. And it was really, it was really interesting as well when, um, because we 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 had a miscarriage um before we had our children and um so many people asked after me which was obviously massively appropriate it was it was my body um that that had the miscarriage and lots of our friends were mutual friends people asking about my mental health which was obviously very kind but it was it was few a few people and mostly people i must say who had been through it themselves as a couple would ask about Doug because obviously he'd 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 lost uh, a longed for um 
sort of baby yet to be he he was also and I think that's again that's it does a disservice to men from this expectation of sports loving more prone to anger but also does a disservice of men's sense of loss of grief of sadness and there that that they are just as able and need to be able to express and sit with those feelings yeah yeah because actually what we have with the dad's emotions is very much about when to put the foot down, when to when mm. to take it to the next level. And it's really kind of like a really dualistic parenting. I'm either not doing it at all or I'm taking it to the next level rather than actually being a rounded person who has, mm. you know, multiple emotions. They just don't seem to be there for the father, which is just a, a missed opportunity, I think, to potentially have explored that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it plays to the it plays to the easy laugh, doesn't it? Because I think we've all we've all been there when we've been trying to hint to somebody, whether it's a partner in a relationship, whether it's a friend, and you're trying to shoot someone's eye, and it goes horribly wrong. Because as much as we try and tune into other people's minds, we are not in their minds, so we can't we don't have telepathy, and so sometimes things do go wrong. So I think they play to the easy laugh, but they could have shown either growth they could have shown difference I think I do like the way that dad at the end dad also when they're they're comforting Riley when Riley has because Riley runs away or tries to run away she shuts down she literally cannot feel the desk goes dark because she can't feel she's run away which again I think is really interesting that sense of utter numbness that a number of our clients report at times um and when she comes back in and she's able to express her sadness, her being sad allows both her parents and both her parents talk about things they miss and their things, the memories that they have that they feel sad that they have left. Um, uh, yeah, they feel sad that, of, of what they've left in the past in, the, in their old home life in Minnesota. Um, but yeah, I, I do think it's a missed opportunity. They could have done more. I think they, they try and do a little bit there because dad isn't just letting... Mm his wife Riley's mother have that conversation he's also there supporting they are being a supportive unit but they could have done more there yeah and that takes me on I think to the kind of the personality side of things so you have these five islands and these islands are each powered by a core memory and one of those is family Mm. and these islands are meant to be what make Riley Riley so yeah, absolutely. Our minds are relational. That works really nicely. But she has a family island, an honesty island, a hockey island, a friendship island, a goofball island. And I'm like, what? Why did you? What? <laughs> That's not personality. Your personality isn't made up of hockey or being a goofball. I think I get what they were trying to, to do because yeah. the idea is that obviously this real structure of mind doesn't involve friendship and family's personality traits as such we're more likely to be looking at things like agreeableness and neuroticism. And I guess that what they're doing is they're taking that down to a more childlike level. You don't have agreeableness, but perhaps you have goofiness and you don't necessarily have neuroticism, but you have something else. Maybe she doesn't have that island. So perhaps that's just because she doesn't have a core memory that had led to her being neurotic. I don't know what neurotic Mm. island would look like. Possibly not a great place. But yeah, I wonder what your thoughts are about that, about the kind of how these islands are powered by a memory and yeah it's it context is lost a little bit in that obviously it is yeah I mean I I think it it makes it it makes for the good internal world adventure because this is one of the things they talk about is that you've got you've got the you've got the external plots and you've got the internal plots what happens to Riley in the human world what happens in headquarters genuinely love that pun um and (laughs) um 
and in the world of the brain. Um, and so we, we, they do, there needs to be places they can go for the story to actually work. So I, yeah, I, I get that. Um, I mean, I wonder, um, and I know this is my kind of inner act therapist very much coming out here, but I, I wonder if they'd conceptualized it instead of islands of personality, they'd conceptualized it as values. And they'd talked about what makes Riley Riley, what's important to value, what do you what do you navigate your life towards? Um, because then actually family or c- kind of connection and family could be connections probably going to be the value rather than family. But again, connection to your family could be one. Um, goofiness is another great word for playfulness. Um, and that you could quite easily, but I, I think that I think people are almost more the idea of personality is something I think we're a bit more familiar with. And I think the idea, I think values-based um, stuff, I think, is is very much in our common parlance from a therapy point of view. And I think it's becoming more something that we're talking about in society. But I also think sometimes we misalign um, or we malign rather values because we we think about values as in like a mission statement that a company may write about how they want to live out their company. But actually, is that what it feels like to the person on the ground in that company? Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Um, and so I wonder, I mean, I wonder whether if they'd, if they'd redone it as values, it could have worked. I think it would have worked better in my brain, but in my brain as a psychologist and a human, but I wonder whether it would have had people kind of going, huh? Because I do think that I think it fits for that sense of when she loses these bits, she because she's lost part of herself in the real world, so it goes down. So she she get she feels friendship island goes down when she Zoom calls an old friend and discovers that there's a new girl on the hockey team and she's really cool and she's really good. And Riley, I mean, I. I I, I, it felt almost like that thing, you know, sometimes, I mean, I know you and I used to remember hanging up the phone properly where the phone went into the cradle and that satisfaction, if you were pissed off at somebody of grinding the phone into the cradle to express your outrage, I think hanging up a Zoom call does not have that same um, uh, uh, point of release. Um, but yeah, I, 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 then the uh, so friendship and descent just starts to fall and crack and crumble. Um so I, I get why they did it. I think it works very well for the plot of the film. I don't think it's as psychologically helpful. I think values would have been the better way to go. I think you're 100% right. They are values. They're yeah. not personality traits. How did I miss that? So they are. <laughs> That's just what they are. And and it's, and there is a problem with that in that your personality isn't, isn't your values. Your values aren't your personality. No, no. But when you... So for people who are unsure what the heck we're talking about when we're talking about values... I think one really good way of of sort of having people think about what your values are is the sort of 80th birthday party. So if you were standing at your 80th birthday party and friends, colleagues, family were to get up and to say, you know, what they think of you, what is important about you, what would you want them to be looking at? What kind of things would would make you go, yes, yeah, you got me. That is exactly what is important to me. So yeah, as you say, you may have playfulness you may have compassion you may have community these are your values these are the things that drive you forward so when you don't know what to do when you are stuck going I have no idea what direction to take it's very helpful to be able to kind of go back and go okay well what would be a values-based action what would be an action that would lead me towards being the person I want to be absolutely sometimes it can be hard because sometimes one value conflicts with another that gets a bit tricky but that is exactly what Riley has there. She has her hockey island, which is 
possibly something about her fitness and her health and her sense of, of a game, basically. There's a kind of a game element of, of hockey, not just being fit and healthy, but also being part of that. Yeah, being community a team. is what, yeah, yeah. I think definitely, especially that core memory, she gets lifted up by her team. There was the team yes. and the teammates. It's very alike. And yeah, physical yeah. mastery, pleasure in that. Yeah. Yeah. And honesty, that's a value connection yeah. with family they, they are all values so when she but, when the core memories disappear and she doesn't know which way to go anymore because she's lost sight of what her values are it mm. makes so much more sense than to think of her as losing her personality yeah. and and also her sense of actually I'm just going to run away I, I I can't see I can't I don't know myself I can't find myself I'm just gonna have to I'm gonna have to go back to Minnesota because I knew where I everything was better there um it, it does make me laugh because at the end, of, I mean, I love, I do love the way Pixar just kind of, they throw in these little lines that just make you, that you just enjoy them. And so later when everything is better and Riley is 12, she's playing hockey again. She's family, she, they've clearly gone through the kind of the pain of moving. Um, and maybe it's not gone away entirely, but they're, they're in a slightly different place. Um, so Friendship Island gets expanded. Anger really likes the friendly argument section that has been added. And if you think about those kind of like preteen relationships onwards, friendly arguments is definitely something you learn to do as opposed to your friendship is collapsing because you have disagreed. Uh, Tragic vampire romance, uh, fashion islands and boy band islands, which fear really hopes is a phase. Um, so I'm not quite sure what value might be around tragic vampire romance, but maybe, I mean, maybe romance, maybe um, sensuality would be a value that would be in line in that, especially in a kind of preteen exploring of sex, um, sex and sexuality at that point would be very appropriate. Yeah, I'm, and I'm sure that is exactly what vampire romance <laughs> novels are there for. And what's interesting as well, I think, is that we talked before about how when sadness touches a memory, it turns blue. And this is the reason mm-hmm. that all of those values disappear is because the core memories that are attached to those values all fall out. Basically, she loses yeah. all those core memories. And I like that way that the idea that Joy doesn't want sadness anywhere near the memories because she will ruin them with her sadness. Mm-hmm. But memories aren't actually a factual representation of an event. So you have your narrative, you lose memory for detail and you fill it in with your narrative and your emotions. So memory is imperfect and absolutely emotions play a part in how we reconstruct our past and how we think of things that have happened to us. So it's absolutely appropriate that sadness will touch them. And what I love is that there's the sense of the film that you actually need to mourn your childhood memories in order to process them. And you grow up by going through your memories of childhood and and, and actually noting the sadness that's inherent in not being that child anymore, not having that anymore. So I think this is kind of necessity to to learn that you need to have a variety of emotions and repressing memories and repressing emotions just isn't going to be helpful in the long term. But I particularly like the way that memory is conceptualized in the film as well as emotion these little marbles of memory that some are just lost in the ether and some are really important you keep hold of but (laughs) emotion plays a part in how you perceive them when they're then played back to you absolutely and I because they they do that a lot they do actually they at the end of the day or at points they actually pick out a memory and they show them in that they kind of they deliberately show them to Riley to kind of almost remind her of something and so emotions that sense of our emotions focusing on something and I love um 
one of the analogies that I love um, from ACT that um, I find really helpful personally and I um, use a lot in my clinical work is the idea of bringing the stage lights up, um, which is the idea that it's, our life is like a stage show. There's what we do, what we think, what we feel, the memories. If you imagine kind of I know, the good old days when we used to go to theatre and you might say, see, like there's something going on in one corner of the stage. But what often happens is our emotion, how we feel about that is we might... Um, there might be a very targeted spotlight on a certain area that might be part of a story. It might be, say, the the, the pain of a breakup, um, the pain of a loss or um, a difficult work experience, and that the spotlight is only showing us part of the story. But actually, if we bring the house lights up, there will be other characters on that stage, other people, other things going on, other facets of our other emotions we're experiencing, other areas of resilience we are not our, the sum total of who we are is not what our emotion at that time is telling us to focus on but sometimes the only way through it it's not joy i think i think if joy had control of the the movable spotlight she'd be yanking it away she'd be turning it to the happiest possible memory on the stage focus on this one ignore that ignore that whereas actually what needs to happen and that's what sadness does because when when sadness sorts it out, sadness, um, when they get the core memories back into the headquarters, joy, sadness touches the desk, which enable, and, and Riley's parents are actually kind of saying, look, what, we were so worried about you. What happened? But Riley doesn't speak until sadness touches the core memories. They turn blue. They go into the tubey core memory collection thing and they start to play. And they're all tinged with blue, which means they're tinged with sadness. Riley watches them. So she watches the kind of greatest hits of her learning to skate, her with her friends, her in her beloved Minnesota. And then finally she can say to her parents and she says, I know I know you really want me to be happy, effectively. Um, oh, sorry, I know she says, I know you don't want me to but I miss home. I miss Minnesota. You need me to be happy, but I want my old friends, my hockey team. I want to go home. Please don't be mad. And that just, <laughs> as a, I, I think feeling for my own inner kind of teenager and also feeling in advance for my kids, um, that sense of, again, that, that, that emotion, that, that sense of emotion, that emotion isn't allowed. And it's, yeah, the breakthroughs I've had, especially when I'm admittedly working with younger children, when you're like, no, no, you've, you're allowed to be pissed off about this. So you're allowed to feel worried about this. And when they say it, just something about being able to say, this sucks, this is painful. I'm really scared about this. There's this release that comes because we can't, we can't move through it unless we sit with it for a while. Yeah. And I think this is one of the reasons why mindfulness and other approaches have become so huge is actually that that capacity to actually sit with our emotions. We we need to learn how to do this. We need to learn how to do it as a society as well as individuals, but it's it, it there's there's a function to them and we can't just whiz past them. Yeah. Especially in adolescence. Absolutely. There's an emotion regulation change in adolescence that we just can't ignore. So there's a tendency to be very swift in some parts of mental health at labelling this kind of reaction. So mm -hmm. Riley has had a huge upheaval at a time of possibly emerging adolescence and it wouldn't be completely 
unlikely for somebody to say, well, she has an adjustment disorder. Mm. Well, she's got a major depressive disorder because that's that numbing. That's the difficulties she's got in coping. But actually, it's all very normal adolescent behavior, especially in the context of a huge house move and moving away from everything. And I think uh, Keltner was one of the other um, psychologists who was involved in in discussing how to set up Inside Out with um, with Pixar. And he talks about how that scientifically a girl at that age is going to start losing joy. And actually that's a phrase he uses in a, in a um, interview he does. We know a girl Riley's age is going to lose a lot of joy. They're going to feel sad. They're going to lose their sense of self-confidence. They have a drop in self-esteem and parents have a tendency to be very shocked by that. And in fact, he, he mentions that, you know, there's that kind of like, Oh my goodness, do we need to medicate our child? But actually, the film is saying this is normal. This is okay. This is part of growth. And that is so important. One of the most important for me messages of the film is that actually, we need our children to learn how to cope with their emotions. And yes, they can't do that if we're telling them to keep a stiff upper lip if they're British or be happy or show me your smile or cheer up or chin up and all that stuff, that toxic positivity it's okay to say and to let them know that actually, yeah, you're going to feel a bit crap sometimes, especially as you get adolescents. That's what your hormones are going to do. Sorry about that. But we're here for you. If you need to talk to us, please don't feel like you need to be the happy little bundle of of silliness, goofiness that you were a couple of years ago, because you're not going to be like that when you're an adolescent. You're going to mooch around the house and be monosyllabic and roll your eyes. Disgust takes quite a big role, I think, in adolescence, in in (laughs) my limited experience so far. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think think they've also, uh, in their... At the end, as I said, they 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 give you insight into the headquarters of of several other characters. So you see the bored kind of twenty something who's in the pizza parlor, you and you see one of the cool girls because Riley is mortified at school when she actually cries when the teacher gets her to stand up and kind of introduce herself and she starts talking about Minnesota and sadness touches one of the memories and then she cries in class and obviously I mean I felt for her at that point could could you imagine anything worse than crying in class on your first day you will be the kids who cries when they introduce themselves but they there's a there's a cool there's some cool girls and at the end they give insight into the headquarters of like this really cool girl who's got this like streak of blue hair fun fact she's wearing the reverse of Sid from Toy Story's skull t-shirt hers is black Black and white where his is white and black it's okay. worth a look um but in inside because often in headquarters one emotion seems to be like a predominant almost de facto leader and inside her emotional headquarters fear is the de facto leader center of the board and they're like everyone's gonna know this is terrible why is this so and there's sadness going why is adolescence so stressful and just put why is being so cool so stressful kind of puts her head on the desk and she's like she's really struggling emotionally but outside she's the center of this little gang of cool kids and i think I think we do our young people a massive disservice by saying, yes, or you're going to have the time of your life. No, you're not. Well, not all the time. You might have some amazing moments, some times that you're going to be, you're going to laugh at relatively nothing till you can't even remember what, and you're going to have the best time doing all kinds of crazy stuff. 
you're also going to have some hard times as well, but actually that's really normal. And there's going to be times when you don't know who you are, you don't know what you want to do, who you want to be, you don't know who your friends are, and you're going to lose sight of stuff. And I think if we do this whole sort of minimize the negative, accentuate the positive, then actually it sets up this this sort of false belief that actually to be a functional adolescent you have to hold it all together and everybody else is holding it together because then it feeds into the whole if I was doing it properly then I'd be able to move on from this I'd find the joy I'd turn my frown upside down as opposed to actually everybody else and it's it's really interesting when you talk to people across the age range of that kind of well what what do you think your classmates your workmates your your sort of trying to find a peer group what do you think they would feel about this or they would say about this and it's it's amazing that capacity that we have when we engage our brain and thinking about what somebody else would feel no experience behave in a given situation we're usually far more able to turn on self-compassion we're far more able to have a, a more nuanced appraisal of what the emotions thoughts feelings behaviors might be going on for that other person and also that capacity to normalize and go yeah this is tough this is hard they would be finding this hard they would be scared they would be worried um as opposed to just when we sometimes what we what we what we allow and can see in other people we often just castigate and censor and reject in ourselves which is not helpful yeah and so you have this idea that as as she grows because she's learning all of this Riley's console should get bigger and all of the different emotions should take their place along the console like like her mum has. Yeah. Um, there is actually a Pixar short. I don't know if you've seen it. It's Riley's first date? Question yes. Mark. Hilarious. Love it. <laughs> and again, I my first takeaway from it was, oh, why did they have to put dad into that role again? Um, but mum's going up trying to be cool. Um, so in this really short short, basically... Um, a boy comes to the door and it's Riley is now 12 and 12, 13. And yeah, basically there's a boy at the door and it's action stations for parents. And, you know, dad is worried and sits at the table with him and mum goes up to try and be cool with Riley. And interestingly, if memory serves, Riley's little emotions in her head haven't changed. Um, But this boy who must be the same age has little male emotions in his head and they're all lounging around the skateboarding and just doing things and not really paying attention to the world around them while dad tries to to drill down and or or be very masculine basically at him um but what i think is interesting is that for a start the first thing that strikes me is that riley's emotions in her head are still mixed a male and female and i don't think the adolescent boy's emotions are both male and female i think that they're all male Hmm. And I wonder, what is that about? Is that because she hasn't quite grown into being female? Maybe it's a puberty thing. Maybe they will all become female. Maybe it's the gender that you associate with. Maybe she's non-binary. I just, I love the idea that you could potentially play with that. <laughs> that is really interesting. No, you're, you're right. Because I, re- I remember when I watched the As in Inside Out, Inside Out, because you, you're really struck by the fact that all of dad's... Um, all of dad's emotions are male and have a moustache like dad is male and has a moustache. Um, and they're all, um, yeah. And, and all of mums are female and have a sort of have glasses and have mum's sort of hairstyle and, and fond of cardigans, it seems. Um, and it's, um, yeah, 
I don't know. I mean, they yeah, they could. I mean, they, they have said they're not planning to do a sequel. They're not planning to revisit it. Um, I, I am glad they did the short because I thought that was very funny. Um, I mean, I it's interest, it is interesting what they're saying about puberty there, whether they are saying that it would change over time, whether it's because actually we would have, I wonder a little bit whether they wrote themselves into a bit of a plot hole there in that they needed to have having different genders actually just added to the diversity if they look different they're more obviously different if that makes sense um and then they kind of made a rod for their own back a little bit about it was easier to do mum and dad could do mum and dad because they're grown adults and what they did with the boy maybe the boy is older maybe yeah maybe that is their theory is actually or puberty as they yes that's another nice little line that they have of the the, the console when they get the expanded console at the end of inside out they're like oh look there's a button here mark puberty what's that and someone says oh no that's that's probably nothing very important and, you know, and everyone in the audience who is <laughs> is a uh, pubertal or post pubertal goes no that's going to be very important <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So at the beginning of the podcast, we talked about the corporate work that we do with InMind Consulting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know one of the things that we hear a lot about in the corporate space when it comes to psychological well-being at work is this term resilience. And I know you and I have had some conversations about this word. And I think that perhaps Inside Out can lend us some ideas about how we talk about or envisage resilience um, in the workplace. What do you think? Absolutely. I think it's really helpful. And um, I wonder if Inside Out did do, if you could almost like Inside Out did corporate training, or perhaps dad did inside the dad from Inside Out did some kind of corporate training where the the idea of resilience, um, it might look a bit like the, uh, the inside of dad's head, where all the emotions shaded a bit to look like a bit of anger. There's a lot of forcefulness, putting your foot down, just keep pushing through as a type of coping that I think most people think of when they think of the word resilience. Um, but actually, I think it really depends on how do you conceptualize resilience? Because I think understandably, there's been a lot of pushback on this term. It's not always experienced as helpful as the answer to people are finding things difficult at work, whether it's companies, individual staff members, teams, the answer you need to be more resilient versus actually what pressures are teams, companies, individuals under what's going on for those people. And I, I wonder whether actually if there was this kind of inside out does resilience, sort of the, the bad resilience training, you might imagine that there'd be some kind of anger, joy, disgust, uh, triumphant of power that focuses on pushing through. They're focusing on turning the smiles upside down, bouncing back harder than before, sadness of fear, Maybe they've been relegated to that circle. They've got to stay out the way. There's no space for them. Um, But I think, as we've said, we need this more nuanced view because we need these emotions. We need sadness. We need anxiety for all the reasons we've talked about. They have functions. And I think true resilience is about being able to recognize that we're human as we said earlier, we bring our human emotions into the workplace. They might show up as a, resi- as a reaction to stress. They might show up as we try and live out our values to try and contribute, show up and work in a way that is actually really important to us. Um, and if we don't 
recognize this in how we respond to colleagues in how we manage people or how we are managed by others we don't recognize the emotions that are going on for people we're going to hit problems um because actually what is going to help people bounce back better are those emotions being seen and recognized and given we'd, we'd probably say given space to if we were using a psychology term but actually people understanding what's going on inside people's heads is a massive first step as you and I have experienced in that work if you can support people and understanding what's going on in somebody else's head and also understanding maybe what's pushing your own buttons in your own heads where you get pushed into maybe sort of responding in certain ways to certain situations then that's a a fantastic springboard that helps um, people manage more effectively work more effectively Um, And I think it links to a concept that I know we've talked about in the past um, about that of psychological safety, because I think as for those who may not know psychological safety, it's the belief that you won't be punished or humiliated if you speak up with ideas, questions, concerns or mistakes. And why is this important at work? It's something that's being talked about more and more now, which is brilliant, because actually it's it's the shared belief that other people on your team are not going to embarrass you. They're not going to reject you or punish you for speaking up. What does that sound like? That sounds like quite a lot of what we see in Inside Out, isn't it? And actually, there's a great quote quote, um, from this person called Altman, um, who says that when you have psychological safety in the workplace, people feel comfortable being themselves. They bring their full selves to work and feel okay laying all of themselves on the line. So I think that's what, I mean, we see that in Riley, don't we? At the end, she has to lay herself on the line. If she doesn't, I mean, that's the only way the story gets resolved is she's run away. She comes back. She's really upset. Well, I know we've already talked about that bit, but she she needs to be able to say, I'm not okay. This sucks. I don't can't be your happy little girl anymore. And only when she's able to label it and name it, she can bring herself into that situation. Can she then have that lovely connected moment, that hug with her parents that makes it all okay? Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's brilliant. And that's a wonderful moment to end on. So thank you so much for coming and joining me today, Kat. And uh, yes, thanks for talking about Inside Out with me, this film, which has got so many different facets and we can use in so many different areas of our work. I think this has been really interesting. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Analyse This, Mental Health in Film and TV. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. My guest was Dr. Kat Gardner. We were discussing the film Inside Out. Music by Joseph McDade. And post-production editing by David Woods. Thanks for listening. Please visit me at The Dr. Boo on Facebook and Twitter. Let me know your thoughts. Love to hear your ideas for any future episodes and your opinions on the episodes we've already done. Spread the word, tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast and don't forget to subscribe, like, rate and review.